Amen. So, so happy Groundhog Day, first of all. Um, I don't know if there's any other significance to this day besides the Lord's Day, but happy Groundhog Day. I, 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 perhaps there's a few people n- not here because they're celebrating Groundhog Day. And I, I understand that because the winters have been so long here in North Carolina. Uh, and we do have some notes coming to you as I see here. So um, here come the notes after Happy Groundhog Day. Um, so today we're going to talk. This is our third installment, our third turning point meeting. And it will be our third uh, teaching about the gospel. And then we'll go to the other two traditions in our following two meetings. So we're not having one of these larger meetings next week. So we'll skip next week. We'll meet in the house churches. If you're not a part of a house church and you want to visit one, you could talk to some of the folks here and try to connect. Um, but otherwise, you could just join us again in two weeks. That would be February the 16th. And then again on the 23rd for our final two turning point meetings. And then the week after that, we're going to have a meeting for those that are interested in being a part of the house churches. So we don't assume if you're coming to these meetings that you want to be in a house church. You may just be attending for the teaching and that's fine. But if you do have interest beyond these meetings, we're going to get your information on the 23rd. And then we will meet with you probably in our house on March 1st. But we will get back to you about all that. We'll see. We'll see how we'll do that. So we have a couple of weeks to to modify that if we need to. All right. Now, in your notes there, it says at the top, Turning Point Teaching 2. That should be a 3. So please change that before you forget or it will have the wrong number on it. It's just... This is teaching number three. I was using the the format from old notes and did not change that. Does anybody need any more? I'm sure we have plenty, but I had an extra uh, set here. All right. Do you want to use my bag there, Faith? We're going to look at Ephesians 4. Do we need to do anything else about that? Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read the first part of that passage in a few moments. It was just a couple of months ago we went all the way through Ephesians, so we'll have some overlap here. But I will still probably talk about some things that I didn't talk about the last time. Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the two foundation stones of Gina's and my lives and ministry along with Matthew 16. I think there's several key passages of Scripture that are like key life Scriptures for us. But these two really formed the the two main foundation stones to our lives and ministries, right? So Matthew 16. And here we're in Ephesians 4. So in a series like this, I always make sure that I use Ephesians 4 because it, it gives so much of where we're coming from and why. It's absolutely crucial. It, it, it addresses the ascension, which is, um, I think, the, the most neglected aspect of the gospel presentation. 
And I see it as neglected for two reasons. One, because it, it insinuates the return of Jesus with all of the accountability and judgment that comes with that and gets our minds out of this world into the world to come with all of the, the negatives that come at the threshold of that and then, of course, the glorious forever positives that challenge the value of this world. <laughs> so all of that makes us a bit allergic to the ascension. You know, Acts 1.11, just the way you saw Jesus leave is the way he'll come back. So there's a, there's a, a connection between the ascension and then the return of Jesus. And, and that's one reason why we tend to resist it, because it reminds us that it's not about this world, it's about the age to come, and that's the world we should be living for. And we will, in fact, be judged. So all that makes us a bit allergic. It's just the natural tendency. That's not my main point tonight. My main point is the second reason why the ascension is something we tend to neglect. And it's the point of Ephesians chapter 4. And that is because the ascension relates directly to the church as the body of the Messiah. And that's an aspect of, of church life that we tend to neglect or put aside and rather substitute our traditions and our wisdom for the way we do church rather than His way. His way is the way of His dominion. It's, it's, it's connected directly to the ascension as we see here in this passage. And so there's... You know, because, because we tend to want to do things our own way, especially in this regard, um, it, we have almost a deep instinct that that's connected to the ascension so we don't explore the ascension aspect of the gospel, which is in fact the crowning achievement of the gospel. Even the return that happens later is something Jesus does to bring his throne to the earth. But he had to have that throne. It's like that was the climactic, essential element to the gospel. Jesus is king and Lord of all nations. Now that reality, the ascension to his throne, the enthronement of Jesus, and the implication that it has for the church, that's where we're going with this tonight. Today, this afternoon. On Groundhog Day. So this is our third, uh, this is, we're, okay, Roman numeral one, right. The gospel continues. This is our final installment about the, the gospel foundations. The gospel is the first tradition. And so the gospel is our foundation, but also our fountain that just feeds into the entire life of the church. Any aspect of, of church or, or kingdom life that we're neglecting or falling short of or whatever it is, it, that, that's, that's a gospel issue. The gospel is not just the track that gets us saved. The gospel is the entire charter of the kingdom. It is the declaration and explanation of salvation and kingdom life. So any falling short you read about in scriptures, the scriptures, whether it's the two sisters and other members of the church in Philippi who are arguing or it's false teaching uh, um, in, in Colossae or in, in Ephesus with First John or whatever, uh, the, the apostles would address uh, the, these problems via the gospel. It's always a gospel issue. 
It's always an unveiling of Jesus that is the antidote to these issues. And so we also build that way through fuller explanation of the gospel. Two weeks, two weeks ago, I introduced the idea of how the gospel, and, and I'm going quickly here, but it, 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 um, it recreates us by the power of the Spirit. The gospel is not just the message of forgiveness of sins, but a new creation. So we live under grace, meaning we're recreated. We live victoriously over sin. We're a new kind of humanity. But then last week we took new creation further. And I I was talking about how the new creation of Romans 6 was leading to the new creation of Romans 9 through 11. I didn't feel like I emphasized that enough. So in summary, I'm emphasizing it a little bit more now. The whole reason why Paul talked about the resurrection granting us new life in Romans 6 was not just for the immediate application of victory over sin, but in the more distant application a few chapters later of living together as family, overcoming the natural and cosmic divisions that would otherwise be occurring. In other words, he could not call Jews and Gentiles to blend together as one community in Rome if he didn't first explain the gospel that we are recreated and as a new kind of human, we are capable of building the house of the Lord because otherwise it's impossible. And so then on that foundation, he could talk about the church as family, but he couldn't do it beforehand. So we did that last time. We talked about the church as family. This time we're talking about something very similar. We're talking about the church As the body of Christ. What's the difference? Well, actually, there's a lot of overlap. The reason why I am so emphatic about the church fundamentally being a spiritual family, right? It's not merely a gathering, though the word means that. And in some contexts, the word church simply means when you all are gathered. And so that's an expression of church. And it even sometimes can mean a legal assembly, meaning sometimes judgments have to come down and the church gathers and prays and prophesies to issue certain decrees, whether it's church discipline or something over the city or whatever. All that. It's, 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 there, there's, there's many aspects to the church. But family is essential and fundamental. It is the, it is the basic meaning of what this assembly is about. And one of the main reasons why I say that with such strength is because of this, this metaphor that Paul uses. I personally think it started with Jesus and Paul picked it up from him, uh, uh, from the Lord's Supper. But anyway, when he employs this image of the body, man, you can't get more organic covenant than a body. The body is intricately, organically, covenantally connected together. And so the very use of that metaphor speaks to me family. And it's almost an even more extreme version of family because of the deep connection that it implies. Other reasons why I see the church's family come right out of John 17. I mean, to me, body in John 17, you can't get more powerful than that. Paul calls us brothers and sisters. First Timothy 3.15, the church is God's household. And that means family. And of course, just the whole Old Testament background that is national, tribal, and then familial. Yeah, it's all there. But anyway, this body metaphor overlaps with the idea of being a family. But it adds aspects that we need. 
that beyond just calling us family, we need to hear about this issue of being a body. The, 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 the body metaphor allows us to be absolutely diverse in our, in our, in our genders, but in our personalities, in our gift sets, and yet that diversity blends together for unity. Not to divide us, but the very purpose of our differences in Christ, the very purpose of our God-given differences, are for the sake of unity, not for the sake of disunity. Right? If we were all the same, we'd have uniformity, but not unity. Because we must reflect God Himself, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So body allows us to celebrate biblically in truth the God-given diversity that causes us to blend together as a family. Right? So this is very important that we actually function as a body, not just talk about it. And that issue is specifically connected to the ascension. So as a body, because body comes from the ascended Lord, that means to live as a body, means to embody the kingdom itself. Another issue that is at play here is that we must be equipped to be this body. Very important. And that's in this passage also. And then with the equipping, this passage also talks about being activated and released. And this is the goal of the five ministries that are written here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And again, not just to talk about it so that they're actually doing it. Right. So that the church isn't dependent on a company or the leadership to conduct everything, but they're so equipped they do it. I mean, the end of this passage is it causes its own growth, the body does. It doesn't say the fivefold ministry causes the growth. The body causes its own growth. Now, some body at some time, somewhere, has to, like, give an atmosphere of enough ventilation where that, that happens. All right, so here we go. We're going to look at, that was all under number one in your notes, all under number one. Now under Roman numeral two, King Jesus of Ephesians 4. So we're going to look at the enthronement, the enthronement of Jesus in Ephesians 4. And I'll read the passage now, or at least half of it, and we'll look back to your notes. So, Paul in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Forgive me for pausing already. I'll get right back to it. But the therefore picks up three whole chapters of gospel presentation and Paul talking about his own ministry as an apostle and revealing the mystery that he was specifically assigned to help create this body that exists among Jews and Gentiles, which implies body life in general. First of all, second thing to say here is that he identifies himself as a as a prisoner because he's in prison, but he sees that as even deeper uh, in deeper dimensions, not only is he in bonds in a prison cell, but he's bound to the Lord. He's not his own man. And he, he's quite forthright about that. I'm not my own man. I'm tied to King Jesus. And the same root word there is a word he uses in a minute about us in relationship with one another. Okay, and that's not unhealthy, weird bondage. It's, it's organic covenantal love that Paul's going for here. So we want to lift these words by the Spirit out of cliché and into raw reality. So I'm the prisoner of the Lord, he says. I'm exhorting you. Because exhortation comes off of gospel foundation. I exhort you to walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Well, how do we do that, Paul? In relationships this way. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there's the bond. That's the same root word as Paul's bonds in prison. So the the word for prisoner and the word for bond in English are different in Greek. They have the same root word. So that's the the Greek speakers and hearers are hearing that similarity. We're bound together. Again, the, the reason why that's not weird is because we don't put that control over one another. That's not what family members do. We submit to one another and serve one another. But the Lord gives us organic covenant, which is why we're family and where the metaphor body comes from. Another thing to to emphasize here, we're to be diligent to preserve this unity. So it's God-given, we steward it, uh, first of all. Second of all, we're diligent, which means we actually have to give focused attention to it. It doesn't happen automatically. Come on, I heard that amen that you wanted to say, and I acknowledge it. Right? This is something we're called to do with extreme intentionality. Or else the Bible wouldn't say, be diligent. It would say, sit back and let the magic happen. Come on. Right? But we don't even believe in magic, so we know it's not going to say that. <laughs> we're not passive. We have too much dignity. This is why we have a, an exhortation. I exhort you because Paul says, if you would allow me to interpret, as an apostle, I have to implore you or you won't get this. There has to be a very loving kick in the seat of the pants in a very loving way based on this gospel that you go for it. All right. God has recreated us. And in the overall sense, he's in control. But love means he doesn't control us. But he gives us liberty and then says, through love, serve one another. So that's that's a good point. So. So be diligent. So number one, it's God-given. We must steward it. But number two, we must steward it. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And my, my next point is of the Spirit. It's not our unity. Right? I'm not going to say, ah, oh, you know, you believe in another God, but I have to be diligent. That's, that's not unity of the Spirit. He never says be diligent to preserve unity and leaves it generic. Heaven help us. It's the unity of the Spirit who prophetically always and only bears witness to the Lordship of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12.1 The prophetic Spirit, there's one prophetic Spirit and He always is in, in harmony with the Lordship of Jesus' confession. Never in harmony with anything else that either says or implies Jesus is accursed. He's not the only one. He's not the special one. He's not the chosen one. Never, 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 never. So the irony here is it's all about unity and yet in Christ it's an exclusive unity on His terms, not ours. And he goes on and he lists his terms. So it's the unity of the Spirit. That's the qualifier in the bond of peace. And here come the qualifiers. There's one body and there's one Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. I was recently listening to someone explaining why he had such a public showing of unity 
with a Christian religion that believes such deep things different than what the Bible teaches. And he said, God doesn't, isn't concerned as much about us, our, doctor, our doctrine as he is about our loving one another. And I'm like, um, you can say that in the right context, but in your context, the people that you were publicly declaring reconciliation with on a deep level, with a public physical showing that made me uncomfortable kissing one another's feet and everything, I see two baptisms between the two of you, not one. Their baptism and their recalls on a whole different kind of faith declaration and a way to receive grace than our faith does. So I'm seeing two, two faiths and two baptisms. That's not our obligation to create ultimate unity among that. It's around the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. It's the apostolic faith according to Scripture, and the very traditions that we're teaching here, traditions in the biblical sense, religious gospel protocols, those are the sources of our unity. And it's that unity that we will fight tooth and nail against the enemy to preserve, right? And that's what we're called, called to do in two more chapters, right? To, to stand up to this battle in Ephesians 6, Right? And one of the tools is the gospel of peace, which is the social harmony among true covenant members. So in letter A in your notes, write the exhortation to unity I just talked about. I got ahead of the notes. But we are under that point. You can make some of those comments. I'm sorry I didn't draw attention to your notes there. But Paul's giving this explanation, first of all, as I said, in light of the first three chapters. Here's the gospel. Now, here's your call to unity. It's a very defined unity. And it's all based on these, these first three chapters of this presentation of the gospel in Ephesians. Okay? And then secondly, this unity is motivated by these qualifiers. All the, the list of the ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc., etc. The accomplishment of this massive Victory over sin, death, and the devil in Christ, by the cross of Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, God has made the two different camps one. So Paul says in light of this great, and this is important, in light of this great cosmic victory, tearing down the walls of separation between Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles and Gentiles, in light of that, you all in local church expressions in the cities, you must be one among one another. Or else this message about the cosmic victory doesn't, it doesn't reverberate as loudly and influentially. If we're speaking about the cosmic victory of Christ in spite of the way we live as the church rather than in light of the way we live as the church. Okay, now letter B, excursus. Now why did I have that? I'm not sure I wondered why when I went back to look at my notes. No, I remember why. Um, it's because in verse 7, Paul makes a planned digression. Okay, I'm calling it an excursus. An excursus is like a little topical digression. Because as, as I've already told you, Paul is at this point in his exhortation. All of these three chapters, 4 through 6, is all about exhorting us to action. The first three chapters were gospel content. Amen? 
Okay. And the second three chapters are exhortation. Do it. Be practical. Right. But now he takes a moment and he takes a step back right in the middle of his practical exhortation. He goes back to theology. And he means for that to catch our attention. It's not just because, oh, I forgot something. He's saying there's one aspect of the gospel that I purposely didn't explain in the first three chapters because I have to do it in the middle of my exhortation to you because you have to see how urgent this is that you have this worldview motivating you to love one another and work together as a body. I have to preserve this moment of explaining the ascension for the time when I'm giving you this exhortation. So he's going back into... A, a, a presentation of the gospel. So, you know, in number one in your notes, the gospel, according to the first three chapters of Ephesians, united Jews and Gentiles, right? This is a massive accomplishment. But now, in number two, that covenant community must become the body of the king. I mean, it is the body by an act of creation. We become what we already are. But now we have to partner with God and deliberately become this body. That's what Paul's saying now. You have to become this body. You can't just be, like, in fact, the body of Christ. You have to be in practice the body of Christ. Because being the body of the Messiah gives him living testimony on the earth as king. Therefore, when I exhort you to be a body, I have to step back and give you yet another unveiling of Jesus as king because it connects directly with his ascension or with the body, with the body. The ascension connects with the body. Right. OK, so we become as a covenant community, we become the body of our king a very particular way. And it's the way he describes here in Ephesians four. Therefore, Paul offers a representation of the gospel from the specific point of view of the ascension. How many of you know I'm talking about the ascension today? I've said it like uh, probably 20 times by now, maybe 23, 24. Uh, how many of you want to raise your hand right now for no apparent reason? Let me see your hands. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So here we go. Paul's representation to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of. Of the Messiah's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to humans. Now, by the way, he's quoting uh, uh, Psalm 68. So thank you, Brett. That was awesome you read that because I was not going to go back to the whole psalm. I'm just going to read this portion. Interestingly, in the Hebrew version, as is translated in your Bibles in Psalm 68, it doesn't say that he gave gifts to people. It says that he received gifts. Now, that might seem on the surface as a contradiction. It's actually not at all because the one implies the other in this military setting. So, Bob Gladstone is going to draw again. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> wow. This is not. Yeah. This is not the triangle. I seem to have a thing about this. Maybe it's. Whoa. What is the deal? Why does it keep doing that? I thought I tightened it up. 
It's the violence of my art. It's my, it's my self-expression. Um, this is not the triangle. This is not the iceberg. This, my friends, is Mount Zion. I'll give it a little snow cap up there. Although you see the consistency. So Mount Zion was the, you know, it, it's the city of the great king. You know, Jerusalem sits on a mountain. It's really kind of a mountain range. But whenever people would go to Jerusalem, they would always go up. Because Jerusalem is an ascent. Right? Even if they're coming down from the north geographically, it still says they're going up to Jerusalem because they're climbing Mount Zion. Right? And so this has a physical application, of course. There is a literal Mount Zion. God's temple was and will be on it. And one day he'll be the temple. Uh, and then there are, there are uh, remnants of the temple there today. So that's where God was. That's where his throne was. The, the Ark of uh, the Covenant was the throne of God on earth, but it had mystical dimensions representing something in heaven. Well, God sits on the throne in the heavens. Revelation 4 is right on the top of a mountain. That's what's implied. If you understand Hebrews 12, you know, we've not come to Mount Zion. We've, come to, uh, we've not come to Mount Sinai that, or a mountain that can be touched. We've come to Mount Zion. Sorry for saying that wrong. And there's a myriad of angels and there's the spirits of righteous men made perfect and God the judge of all and the blood of Jesus. So this, there's this spirit realm, Mount Zion, parallel to this natural realm. So when God would come down to fight with His people, to join them, really pull them to join Him and go fight His enemies, He would come down from His mountain in this, whatever battles in the Old Testament Psalm 68 is referring to probably several. He would lead them to battle coming down off his mountain. And then as the, the, the kings of the ancient east would win victories, they would plunder their enemies. They would plunder their wealth, the treasures of their gods. They would take certain people to be their servants, to be useful in their, in their kingdom. And they would take this plunder and they would bring it to their people and into their temples and, of course, there would be some of those treasures and people who would serve the king. So in that sense, Psalm 68 is saying, you know, Yahweh came down, won a victory with his armies, plundered the armies and received the gifts. Which were, was the plunder of his army from the other army. He received them, but the implication of receiving the gifts is then to give those gifts to his people to benefit them. So the whole idea of receiving the gifts is, is in order to give them, which is what Paul is doing here. He's quoting the text with some interpretive information. Of course, he received gifts. That means he gives gifts. So the, when the Lord came down, he won the victory. Now he has the plunder. As he ascends back to his throne, I'll draw a crown here perfectly. He is giving gifts to his people as he ascends. He's giving gifts to his people. This is a gospel statement because Paul takes that whole analogy, Psalm 68, and he says, your king came down, he won the victory, and as he rose back to his throne, in particular, during his ascension, he gave gifts to people in perfect fulfillment of Psalm 68. So verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, those are his prisoners of war, and he gave gifts to people. Now, just a little switch in a New Covenant setting. 
the prisoners of war that the Lord takes from the enemy then become his, his liberated covenant people. They don't just become general servants, you know, like, kind of like Daniel became a servant of Babylon, but then he became a star in Babylon. So we're, not, we, we're no longer bad guys when we're liberated. We become good guys. So yeah, we're prisoners of war, but we're also liberated to serve the king and his people. It's just there's a little bit of a, a switch there. So these prisoners of war that are liberated have a very positive application. But then in verse 9, more gospel talk. Okay, well, verse 8, let me read it again. He ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and then he gave gifts to people. Now, remember those words. Now, Paul pauses and he says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So what Paul is saying here is I can't just tell you that he ascended. I have to remind you that he descended because that's the way of the kingdom in, in, in God's mind. You don't get exalted unless you go down low. That's the way of the king. And that's what we talked about last time, right? Through love, serve one another. We don't, we don't exalt ourselves, we humble ourselves, then God lifts us up. So, that gives us a little bit of overlap with last week in number four in your notes. Victory through sacrifice, royalty through servanthood. Paul is very deliberate to point out the only way that Jesus could take this throne and, quote, fill all things, which will, just to explain that, that means absolute dominion over everything whether it's heaven or earth, whether it's the depth of the oceans or the height of the, the city of God, whether it's mosquitoes or great creatures surrounding the throne or humans in between, whatever it is, he has total and full dominion. At the end of the age, all of creation will be reconciled in him with the rebellious creation being discarded. He will fill all things. There's no way to have that level of dominion without going very low. So he makes sure he says this. The ascension implies his descent. And we have to follow the same way. That's the same spirit behind these five ministries that are the gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Right? That comes right on the heels of the descent ascent. Because our tendency is to take these leaders and make them the heroes and the celebrities. But the flow of the passage is, well, your great king went lower than low. He went well beyond what any sinner should do, but he went, in a, you know, as far as serving and emptying himself, if you would. I mean, he, he, there, there's no humility that's deeper than Jesus. And that's why God raised him to the place where no one can be higher. And then he gave these five gifts. And they're not to be your heroes and your celebrities so that you all join to support them. No, they're the same thing, the same pattern as the king getting below you so that you could become the body. There's no other way to get the body. Now, let me tell you something about this ascension right here. How low he went. He won a victory way down here, yielding his life in innocence of any violation of the law, always obeying his father perfectly laying down his life in the lowest form possible, the humiliating, torturous form of capital punishment that the Romans perfected from the, not um, the Phoenicians, I believe it was. I mean, that's the ugliest thing. Roman, Roman citizens, it wasn't even legal to crucify them. 
unless they were traitors. So Jesus was, he, he was you know, publicly shamed. It was a way of killing someone before they were even literally dead. Stripping them of every bit of dignity, clothing, ability to use the bathroom, bat, bat away flies, bat away the birds poking at him. I mean, just the ugliest, most horrible, opposite to being king that you can get. He had to do that to save our souls. God, therefore, raised him from the dead. When God raised him from the dead, sin, death, and the devil got defeated. Amen. The, the powers that ruled the world, fueled by human rebellion and death, where do they exercise their power from? The powerful authorities that we're told about in two chapters. We don't battle against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, guys, right here in the skies. Here they are. Dominion from the bad guys. Jesus died and rose again down here. Down here. You see how important his enthronement is? Because these beings were stripped of their power. The victory was down here. It is finished. Don't get me wrong. It's finished. There's nothing going to stop him from ascending. But he still has to ascend. Because they're stripped of their powers... In an ultimate sense, but they're given an extension of life. They can still exercise their evil until they're folded and buttoned away forever. Before then, they still exist, though they're defeated. That's the whole tension of our age. He did that down here, but he still had to fly high to apply it. He had to ascend above these powers. In fact, it says in chapter 1, he's far above them. So... This artwork is not to scale. You have to use your imagination. Don't depend on my drawing. See this lame little distance here? No way. These powers who are physically high above the world, they look up and they can't even see the bottom of his feet. He's not just above them. He's far above them. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named. That happened at the ascension. Come on, guys. That's when he took his throne. That is when he gave practical grace from this place of enthronement, having won, follow me now, having won this victory. He took this enthronement over these guys. He can now release grace for us to be the church down here. Without the ascension, he can't release the grace to be the church. He might be able to release grace to be saved, but not to be the church. Because the church requires the five ministries, and they were bound up by these powers of the air. So when he won the victory and took ascension over them, he can release these five ministries to create a body that says ascension. When we avoid body, we avoid ascension. When we're church as usual, we might be saved and have all kinds of personal victories, but in our cities as a body, no. Because we're not embodying this kingdom, because there's a connection between that kingdom and the body. 
So if we don't live under the powers of the air as individuals because we're saved and we walk in victory, but neither do we become a body as bodies in our cities of the world under what dominion do we still exercise our identities? Sorry, I hate to say this. This is the implication that we still live under the thumb as churches of these evil powers if we don't relate to him and his dominion over them. And the only way to do that is to actually be a body. Not to say, well, you know, whatever. We have a different way. It's like, you have your different ways of doing things. His way is to be a body. Is that happening? Because if it's not, then we're skipping the, the connection to the ascension. Remember when Miriam came to the tomb, John chapter 20? She realizes the man is not the gardener, but it, it's Lord Jesus Christ. When he says her name, Miriam, she says Rabboni and goes to him and clings to him. And what does he say? Stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. He was jealous. He was jealous to make this ascent. Because he was jealous for everything it implied. It's God's purpose for him to actually be enthroned. It's like, that's the point. You can't hang on to me here. Not that she was strong enough to keep him, but he was making a point. As wonderful as this is, I'm not done. And I'm not going to be sentimental about my resurrection. My resurrection was a victory that gives me a throne I'm going to go get. You can't try to keep me at resurrection level. You have to let me be at ascension level. Do you see his jealousy over ascension? This is one of the reasons why. Because he was jealous over his body, which is his bride. Now, she doesn't understand that. She only has immediate resurrection knowledge. She's like, oh, my undreamed dreams are coming true. I want you here. I want you now. He's like, no, I'm not done. And I'm not going to stop for you as, as devoted as you are. And as clingy as you are, and as much of a hero as you will look in some ways to a lot of people, I'm telling you to stop the devotion on this level and let me fly. Sometimes we cry out for revival as a substitute for being the body. We insist on holding on to him at resurrection. But we don't want to take him up here or follow him up there, which means being a body down here. And just like he stopped Miriam's worship, I wonder how willing we would be to hear this prophetic word coming forth in a prayer meeting, praying for revival, when he says, stop clinging to me. You're crying out on your terms. You want me to come and make up for things that you could have taken care of by just doing what the Bible said. So I wonder how many prayer meetings are willing to hear him say, stop clinging to me. You've not yet followed me up the mountain, which would require becoming a people here that you do by obedience to the wisdom of God in Scripture rather than substituting your own traditions for that and then asking God to just dump, dump his grace on our disobedience. This is important. You heard Mike testify, we, some of us here, not all of us, but some of us have been through a historic revival in, uh, in America. It was a significant moment and was like living a dream. However, nothing substitutes the authority of God's word. 
Nothing. What the Bible talks about. Yeah, the Bible talks about presence and glory. Amen. But guess what? If, if we're always crying out for an outpouring to, to give us more presence, perhaps it's a testimony against ourselves that we're not building the house that he would abide in, which is presence. So that, that, that to me is a little bit more of a biblical concept than just crying out for more, which I believe in as long as it's in the context of wisdom. See, this has to be restored. You guys, now you know why we do what we do. To me, this isn't a neat drawing or a teaching. This is real, man. So, somebody, let's try this. Even if we're limping along the whole way, let's not lose the elements of any other background that gives us fuel. I mean, I pray for revival Almost every single day, by name, for my family, for leaders, for our churches, for the church of our city. I totally believe in that. But the Bible's the Bible, man. The word of God's the word of God. It gives us the wisdom. And I keep pointing as it, this as if you would get the point. But um, this this takes precedence over even our desire for more outpouring. In fact, I would say that any outpouring that occurs is ultimately trying to serve this. So whenever God moves by His Spirit, whether it's revival or a prophetic word comes forth, I like to share this with my prophetic friends. I'm getting a few more prophetic friends lately. And they're giving words that are amazing. But I still like to remind them, God is always assuming that when we get prophetic words, we are also reading our Bibles. And the context of all revelation is still biblical wisdom. Right? Right? That's what we prayed for. Well, actually, I didn't say those words, but in the Ephesians 1 prayer, Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You see the order? We think revelation is awesome. God's like, I prioritize wisdom. Wisdom is mentioned first there. It's the first gift mentioned, the word of wisdom. It's the first gift mentioned later in that chapter when it's apostles and prophets and evangelists. There's not, you know, equal in value, but not equal in order. Apostles are first because they build by wisdom and create the context for everyone else to flourish. See what I'm saying? So this, this pattern is always God's will. We don't want to get off track and do what we're doing because we think it's neat, because we like hanging out, or just crying out for revival because we so badly need it, which we do. We want to do it in this context. We want to understand what the Word of God teaches and do that. And within that context, cry out for the glory that Scripture talks about. Okay, that's kind of a mouthful. Everybody with me here? If we're not pursuing the body, which we're told to do in Ephesians 4, we're not pursuing the kingdom. It's not the only aspect of the kingdom, but it's an important one. If we're not pursuing the kingdom, that means however we're organizing ourselves is not under his lordship. It's under some other lordships. And that's for real. That's not the most popular thing to say. And the Lord knows how much trouble this has gotten me in in the past. Um, By the way, the, the kernel of this message came to me extemporaneously when I stood up to lead a prayer meeting which I was completely 
uh, tired. I had no intention of saying anything, but just leading in some prayer. The few things I had on my heart, the guy before me said. So I'm like, well, that takes care of that. I'll just get up and say some prayers. Lead a little bit, because that's my job here in this little prayer meeting here. So I got up to lead in prayer, and this thing came on me from Ephesians 4. I'm not sure how it hit me. It's extemporaneous. I mean, I'm sure God was using some things I had learned or studied or heard and whatever. But out came this general message. And uh, it became a foundation stone to our lives. And the wisdom we use to build the church, because there's more at stake than just we like to hang out. And it also open, uh, uh, struck us with some wounds that took a while to uh, heal in that, in that very ministry setting. It was ironic the Lord used that time to bring these things to pass. Yeah. So, so if we don't get this church, we won't ultimately see the restoration even of Israel. That's why it happened in Israel. So you're just going to cry out for Israel's salvation? What about the corresponding reality on the ground? What, what, what are you saying? They'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. As complicated as this might seem, it's really simple. If you don't actually become family, which will mean overcoming all kinds of powers. Think about that for a minute. Oh, I want to go to the mountain and wave some flags and bind some things over cities. Really? Well, there's all this fragmentation in the city church. And everybody harbors this, that and the other thing. You don't even hear about it. Something they should have forgiven. And and let's, let's say it wasn't some big heavy thing, but something doable that should have been forgiven pretty quickly has now been lasting for years with little resentments. And you keep going to prayer meetings just because it all hides in the traditional way of doing things. Come on now. House of prayer. We emphasize house of prayer instead of house of prayer. When the house is built right, how strong the prayers are. You could accomplish more in an hour of prayer than just a a disparate group of people with all kinds of issues and relational issues they don't even take care of that, that, that they can accomplish in a year. The house of prayer can accomplish in maybe a month. So there's a lot at stake, is my point. Yeah, so what does Paul say? Um, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Parallel statement. Don't give a place to the devil. There's a lot at stake. This is where this it's this worldview where he's coming from. His urgency is not be nice. His urgency is, is your relational divisions open the door to the devil to traffic in your midst. And there's no shutting it until you get that right. You can't just, well, you know, Shandai, you, you can't. You got to make it right. And then beyond that, if you're literally not building the body, but rather carrying on the concept of church that automatically, inherently fragments the body. These guys are running where they shouldn't be running. They're like little little chihuahuas barking at these big giant dogs. And the dogs are running away because we're so divided. They have and we're wondering, like, why do they have so much authority to to do these things that they're doing and whatever, sickness and whatever. That's why when we get to the Lord's Supper, Paul's like, that's a covenant meal. If you don't, if you're not living covenant, but contradicting covenant, when you take in a covenant meal, you're literally going to take food in your body that compromises your immune system. And you've already paid that price. This is not a small deal. 
We bop through life. Oh, whatever. It's not whatever. It's like we sign up for King Jesus or nothing. Because all these things are related in our lives. This is why I teach this in a recalibration or refounding type of meeting. Because this is the worldview we come from. It's not personal preference. It's a kingdom worldview. I wish more people understood it. And that's not an elitist statement. That's coming from someone who's authorized to speak it with a certain history to say it. You see what I'm saying? We need more of this. It's not just what I or we bring. It's what's in the scripture. So Jesus took on the form of a servant. We already talked about that letter B. You see that sub point B? The specific goal of this gospel of servanthood to royalty is the body. So how does that happen? Beginning in verse 11. Here's the latter part of of the teaching. And we don't have assignments. The assignments were already given the last two weeks. I didn't even do that. There's enough to do based on the last teachings. This is more of the same. Verse 11, here's the gifts from verse 8. Here's the way he builds the body. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds and teachers. These are the gifts, the five great gifts that come out of the bondage that was binding them in the skies. Right, so... The power of God saves a soul, liberating a man or a woman, a boy or a girl from sin when he or she believes. The power of the ascension liberates that person as one of the five ministries, if that person is meant to be in the five-fold ministries. That happens when these powers are overtaken by the king. Now we can say that person, like Steve Hill from the Brownsville Revival, he's an evangelist. I would even call him a prophet. But let's just say he's an evangelist, all right? When, when, when he believed in Jesus, a sinner got saved. When the ascension applied to his life, the church got an evangelist. Because it wasn't just that he was bound in sin down here. His evangelistic ministry was bound by these powers up here. And the, the resurrection dimension touches him, he gets born again. When the ascension dimension touches him, for lack of a better way of putting it, he gets liberated to to release grace to the body to become the body that Jesus intended. So these five ministries, they constitute the way the saints get built, that they get equipped and released. That's the way. The five ministries must be functioning. They are the expression of the Lord of the church. They're the expression of his government. And that doesn't mean just ruling communities. It means serving them because we already talked about that. That's the way of the king, right? So let me, let me say something about this. Uh, verse 12, I'll read it first, of course. Verse 12, these five ministries are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. All right, a few points to make here. Number one, these five ministries are in order of their importance to the building of the body. It all has to be anchored by apostles. One of the needs of the day is the genuine apostolic ministry being released. Not people called apostles. You and I could call ourselves purple people eaters if we wanted to. We could call each other whatever we want. We could call each other king and queen of, of England or something. But that doesn't mean it's real. I'm talking about the actual release 
that carries the spirit of the descended, ascended king with the wisdom to build his house his way that anchors all the other four. Then they function in that context. You're going to have nothing but saints getting built up. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. This word for equipping, it's, it's root idea. Say goodbye, teary eyes. Its root idea is to make whole, not just to teach how to do stuff, though that can be part of it. The, the, uh, by the way, let me let me put this word here. Restoration is the root idea to that word equipping. Restoration. Making people fully human in Christ, fully ready and prepared. Okay, not perfect, flawless people, but making their souls whole so they don't just have an impact by their gifts but their actual life can bear fruit we get a lot of people impacted by gifts what we want is a people okay not utterly perfect but the general tenure of their lives growing in maturity and character can actually actually affect other people and bear fruit not just impact through gifts and talent which we're really good at over here in the west in our image-based society. I mean, there's people who don't even think you have any legitimacy unless you have a social media presence. You can do all kinds of stuff. I, I was telling some of our folks the other day, God spoke to me a life-changing word when I was very young through a secular song. It's, and it wasn't because that secular band was meditating and abiding in Christ and bearing fruit in my life. It was my abiding in Jesus, and He can use anything to speak a word and have an impact. But it's life on life that produces fruit. Fruit comes out of the sap and the internal realities of the plant or the tree. Right? So what, he, what, what the whole point, really this is the eternal purpose, is to conform people to the image of Jesus. To equip people for the work of ministry. So they're not doing ministry because they know how. They're doing ministry because their lives are authentic and built in Christ and capable of actually bearing fruit by just being around them. That's the goal of the five ministries. And we're like, we're going to have a thing where we have the five ministries equipping people. Really, how are you going to have a thing with five ministries equipping people? Equipping means making them whole as humans. Are you going to spend the time and surround them and train them in that context? Is there going to be the vibration of life affecting them? Or is it just going to be information and practice or whatever else? God wants whole people who can bear fruit. Come on now. You see, that's what then builds the body. Because when you have people like that, I don't mean being perfect tomorrow. I mean moving actually in that direction. What's going to happen as a result of that? People are going to build each other up. It's going to just start happening. And we're going to be like, how how do you handle this? Because this replicates. We add by having giant meetings. We multiply by building people. Because that's where the river flows. Life to life. So that's the second thing I wanted to say. And then the third thing I wanted to say about verse 12 is that then the saints do the work. Which I already kind of did say, didn't I? So there you have it. And the goal is, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of the Messiah. You see the emphasis on maturity? 
But now it's not the individual maturity that we get maybe like in Romans 8 or something. It's the community maturity, which is moving from like resurrection level to ascension level. Like, let's learn how to do this together as a body with different gifts and different people. Because if we can find each other on that level and actually work together, we'll overcome 70% of issues that we never would have found in another context. Isolation, social media, whatever it is. It's only in that context do we even develop ourselves, and that's the irony that then develops the body to give Christ's physical presence filling a city. So powerful. Where do we leave off? Uh, oh, oh the, the, the emphasis on maturity and this, this, this almost odd picture of one giant man, which Paul was talking about earlier in chapter 2, where Christ is the head. Now, Christ is king. He's distinct, though connected to his body. He's distinct. He's a distinct person, but he's connected to his body. But now it's Christ and his church as his body becomes, forgive the stick man, becomes one big Jesus man in the earth. And Jesus is the head in the heavens, but he's connected to this body on the earth. That's what Paul's going for. If we can learn how to do body here, we automatically rise up into his ascension life. Then you have, then you have this man. Okay, don't look at the picture. Look at the idea. You have this man walking around your city. The enemy does not want that. That's what he really doesn't want. Because if he doesn't have this, then he'll always wield some kind of authority in the city. If he's got this, he's doomed. You say then, like, we take over politically? Ah, maybe not. Maybe we'll get persecuted to death because of this. Because the enemy's raging. He can't, he, there's no blurry zone anymore with the church. And now it's all clear who the real church is and connected to the body. So he may, he may kill us physically. This doesn't mean we take over our cities, but it means we, we, what, what, what's, we dethrone him from our, uh, from, it's the spiritual influence. And I believe that will be happening even during tribulation, let alone getting toward tribulation. It's both and. Ephesians 4, even at the end of the age, will push both points. Because they'll be separating wheat and tares. Everything will be clear. So this is what we're going for. There's an emphasis on the full body maturity. That's why these little things we do count toward the big picture. So as a result, we're no longer to be children. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See there? There's more emphasis on maturity. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every aspect into him who is the head, even Christ. Right? Immaturity is passive. It gets blown around. Maturity speaks the truth in love. It's the, the influencer versus the influenced it is the, the producer versus the consumer. It is the servant versus the selfish one. The difference between children and adulthood in Christ. From Christ, in verse 16, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. And we finally get back to what Paul said in verse 7. Every individual role is important. But wait, let me stop. Those individual roles won't work right unless we have the five ministries building the body. And then when you have the building the body, then you have all these different roles then released. 
So that happens in the middle of verse 16, according to the proper working of each individual part. That causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. And if you forget anything else I said, just remember this picture right here. And I'm sure it will all come flooding back to you. So I just refer you to your past notes and assignments of serving one another in love and the other practical things about entering into the new creation and then serving one another in light of this message. Now you know where we're coming from and why, and we'll push it forward uh, in the next two sessions, starting in two weeks back here. Let me pray blessing on you as you...